Well, Happy New Year to all you precious people. And uh, it is always a joy to see the faces of those who are able to gather. And on this initial Lord's Day of 2021, we're breaking for a week from our Believe and Live series in the Gospel of John in order really to do the same thing that we've been doing there, but in a concentrated way, we want to set our eyes today upon the beauty of our immutable Lord Jesus. Another way to say that, in these tumultuous times, I and I know your other pastors are burdened to speak a word to us again about the all-sufficiency of Jesus. I don't know where your heart is in terms of tenderness toward the Lord. I don't know where your heart is in terms of affection for your brothers and sisters in Christ. But I'm burdened in a joyful way to again direct our mind's attention and our heart's affection to the enoughness of Jesus. And to unfold from the text that we'll consider what it looks like to live upon the unshakable foundation of Jesus Christ's sameness. We've lived through a year, as you all know, and need very little, if any, reminder of tremendous tension. Cultural tensions due to COVID and all the polarizing perspectives surrounding it to which Christians are not immune. Ethnic tensions over the course of the last year, especially heightened in our land in the wake of the deaths of Ahmad Arbery and George Floyd and all the polarizing tensions and views surrounding those ethnic unsettlednesses. Political tensions, which come in our land every four years at least with the presidential election cycles, but last year seeming to be exacerbated by the other surrounding tensions that are going on in our land. And in the midst of those political tensions, the increased polarization of views surrounding the situations in our land to which again Christians are not immune. This church has been affected by all of those things. So in summary again, the burden of today's sermon is this. Although everything in our world is changing, you have to be a fool not to see that. Although all in our world is changing, Jesus remains gloriously the same. Come what may, you can put your feet on a boulder, on a rock, on an unfracturable foundation called the truth of Christ's constancy. And when the rains come and the floods rise and the winds blow, God's people do not have to be blown around like chaff in the wind because the foundation of the lives of God's people is the firmness 
of our Redeemer. I'll be reading from our sermon text in Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Hebrews 13, 1, hear the word of the living God. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, suffered outside the gate. So, let us go out to Him, outside the camp, bearing His reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Therefore, Pardon me. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Let us ask God again for his blessing before we dive into it. Oh, Father, I'm asking you here and now and in the hearing of these people who I love so dearly for the most dangerous and the most delightful of all gifts that you could give. I'm asking that you would please give to us a fresh sight of the glory and the gospel of the risen, reigning, soon returning Lord Jesus Christ. I ask also that you would, in particular, protect me from speaking falsehood. And you would empower me by the grace that Jesus bought at Calvary to exalt Him. And especially, I ask that you would pull the veil back and let us see in Jesus what you see down deep at the core of His character. Let us see the immutability of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and the manifold applications that should have in our life. We ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, verse 8 is the burden of today's sermon. I believe it's the center of the passage. It's the apex to which everything points and from which all the other applications flow. The author in chapter 13 of Hebrews is unloading a host of applications. It's like he's built his doctrine. He did that for the first ten and a half chapters. He begins his application midway through chapter 10. But when he makes his way to chapter 13, he's like, He's got so much he wants to touch on that he, in rapid fire, gives this unloading of applications. But I believe the grounding of every one of them is in verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's pointing to that truth in the first seven verses, and he's flowing from that truth in the verses that follow. The word same, Jesus Christ is the same in verse 8, is only used one other time in the book of Hebrews. It's in Hebrews 1.12, back at the beginning. Let me read verses 10 to 12 for context of Hebrews 1. God the Father speaking to God the Son, the Father to Jesus. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. That's the Father calling the Son Creator. They, that is all of creation, will perish, but you remain. They will all become old like a garment. Like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. So when the Father looks at the Son... He sees a quality in him that nothing else in all creation possesses. That is, sameness. Unchangingness. Immutability. Firmness. You are the same. This word in Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same, is intended by the Holy Spirit to focus our attention on a particular aspect of the deity of Christ. Like a diamond with many beautiful cuts creating all of its facets, we are to look at the particular revelation of Christ made to us in the Scriptures and hear the particular aspect of His deity that we are to zone in on, fix on, focus on, dwell upon, is His immutability. Hebrews 13.8 shines its light on this attribute of Jesus. His immutability is His inability to change. That doesn't mean that He's uninvolved or not active. He is alive. He is active. God is dynamic. He is not static. He's not carved out of wood or stone. He is living. He is the I am. But in His eternal existence, He is unwaveringly the same. Jesus Christ is, verse 8, the same. In His nature, He is as He has ever been and as He will ever be yesterday, today, and forever. Times and seasons have no effect on Jesus. 
they do not alter him. No movement of any nation or of any government can amend Jesus. He never undergoes character alteration. No one pressures the Lord Jesus to bend or to break. He cannot be adapted. He can't be amended. He is immune to modification or mutation. The nature of Jesus is indefatigable. He is unreformable. He cannot be reshaped. He can't be refashioned or restyled or revised. According to Hebrews 1.3, Jesus radiates the unfading glory of God because He possesses the nature of God. The reason that the Bible says the Lord Jesus can save you and me forever is because, Hebrews 7.25, if we draw near to God through Him, He saves us forever because He ever lives to make intercession for us. He is unremittingly the same. As God possesses the attributes that are beyond our finite mind's ability to comprehend, so Jesus possesses all the same essential attributes. He is God. So when God speaks of Himself in the Old Covenant, I, the Lord, do not change. Malachi 3.6, this same truth applies to the Son and to the Spirit. And we ought to give God praise for this particular aspect of the beauty of our Redeemer. Because, as that Old Testament verse says, Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change, therefore the sons of Jacob are not consumed. We don't perish because God cannot change. A.W. Tozer says it this way, to say that God is immutable is to say that He never differs from Himself. The concept of a growing or developing God, Tozer concludes, is not found in the Scriptures. Spurgeon, meditating on the immutability of the Lord Jesus, says, Jehovah does not change in His essence, in His attributes, in His plans, in His promises, nor in His threatenings. And when R.C. Sproul was meditating on the immutability of Jesus, he says it's the most terrible doctrine of all to everyone who will not believe the Gospel because, to quote Sproul, God's immutability means that He will not grade you on a curve instead of on the basis of His holiness. Jesus is the same. To think of Him as less than He truly is is rank idolatry of the mind. It is a crafting for yourself of a graven image not made with hands but from the material of your mutable thoughts. But the true Lord Jesus cannot be molded by you because He was not made by you. To encounter by faith Him changes you, not Him. He is God and there is nothing that anyone can do about it. To ignore Him does not evaporate Him. In the end, all must deal with Him. As we're taught in Hebrews 4.13, and in the end, all will acknowledge Him as Lord of all. So the foundation of everything in the Bible, the foundation of everything in the world, 
The foundation of everything in eternity, beyond God's little invention called time, is the glorious truth that Jesus, the Christ, does not evolve. He does not transform. He does not have a shifting of shadow. He is, and He is immutable. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, and today, and forever. I begin that way because the way this verse works in chapter 13, as I've alluded to a moment ago, is, I believe, as the ground. Meaning, it is the therefore of the passage. Because Jesus is the same, therefore, do verses 1 to 7. Therefore, do verses 9 and following we really find three applications, though there are many others. We find three applications in this text of what it means to live upon the immutable Jesus. And those three applications I could put simply as this. You will be a wise person if your feet are on the foundation of the changeless Christ and that wisdom will manifest itself in love to God, love to His Word, and love to His people. You see, a wise person invests their life wisely. That is, in things that last. And though we could certainly parse out under each one of these categories many things that will be eternal, there are really three categories of eternal things into which we can invest our life. And a wise man and a wise woman, a wise boy and a wise girl, will invest his or her entire existence into those things which last forever. That is God, His Word, and His people. The text takes them in the other order. Investment in people, investment in God's Word, and investment in God Himself. These are applications of believing that Jesus is immutable. So we can say all day long, I believe that God doesn't change. I believe like the author of the book of James, he would say to us, show me your faith by what you do. What is the application of the sameness of Jesus yesterday, today, and forever in the lives of his people? First, as I mentioned, the immutable character of Jesus will fuel our love for others. In verses 1 to 6, the author goes in concentric circles. He starts as far out as he possibly can. He even mentions strangers in the opening syllables of this chapter. And then he moves down to where it's just you and God. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. So in those concentric circles, there are five expressions of love that flow out of the life of those whose feet are planted on the immutable Jesus. Because Jesus Christ is the same, verse 1, we are therefore to love our brethren. Do you see that little verse? We are to love our brethren. Now, time to tune in. That does not mean moderately interested on occasion in the welfare of God's people. That does not mean sometimes interested in encouraging the faith of God's children. It's the word Philadelphia. It's brotherly love. 
because you have been bought and now belong to the same Redeemer as the person sitting next to you, see to it that you love them. The sameness of Jesus influences the way we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Another way this shows up in horizontal love, because Jesus Christ is the same, verse 2, be hospitable to strangers. Back when we did a seven-year-long sermon series through Hebrews, for those who endured that season of Grace Church's existence, we labored this point. I'll give you the application from the sermon on Hebrews 13.2 that was about five years ago. Give God your house key. Most Americans, I'll just say Westerners in general, I'll say capitalistic societies even more generally, view their home as their empire. It's the place you retreat to establish your kingdom. I'm not saying you do that. I'm saying that is a general assessment of our culture. Out there, you're on other people's turf. In here, it's your turf. I believe the Bible speaks very differently than that. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. I would say, give God your house key. It belongs to Him and not you. It's not your place to escape from the world. It's your place to demonstrate the agape love of the Lord Jesus to others. Being hospitable is part and parcel to the Christian life. It's a command in the book of Romans, and it's modeled par excellence in the life of the Lord Jesus. In the book of Hebrews, there were strangers who were on the run needing a place to stay because they were being persecuted. So if someone else testifies that they belong to the same Jesus to whom you belong, then they ought to be welcomed in your abode. A third way that the immutable character of Jesus fuels our love for others is not only love to the brethren, not indifference toward them, but love to them, Hospitality to the strangers, and by the way, entertaining angels doesn't mean that angelic creatures with wings on their back show up at your dinner table. It means Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. God has assigned angelic hosts to minister to his elect. And everywhere Christians go, so also do their angelic hosts. So if you invite a believer into your home, you are also inviting all the angelic creatures that God has assigned to minister to that person. Verse 3, because Jesus Christ is the same, remember the prisoners and those who are ill-treated. Prisoners. Everywhere the sword comes for Christians in church history, the church is purified. Every time and every place there have been protracted seasons of ease for believers, the church has been diluted. We ought not have a martyr complex and pray for persecution, but the reason, verse 3 says, remember those in prison as though in prison with them, is because chapter 10 tells us that many people in this church, the book of Hebrews is written to a local church probably smaller than this one, many in this church were in prison for their faith. Read the end of Hebrews chapter 10. Remember those in prison as those in prison 
with them. If you were to visit somebody in prison who had been in prison because of their fidelity to Jesus, it would out you as a follower of Christ. So the author of Hebrews says, don't avoid that. Identify yourself with God's suffering saints. And he includes not only those in prison, but those who are ill-treated. I know that I'm speaking in a cultural moment where many in our land, and no doubt many in Christ's kingdom, perhaps some even in this congregation, would say, but pastor, I'm worried that a day is coming sooner rather than later where the government's going to come for us too. They're coming for our churches. They're coming for our gatherings. They're coming for our worship. They're coming for our Bibles. They're coming for all of our freedoms. To which I say, not in a dismissive way, but in a Romans 12 way, so be it. Let them come. I don't care. Because Hebrews 12.3 tells me what I'm supposed to do when it happens. Consider Jesus who endured such hostility by sinners against Himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How are we going to endure? We're going to endure like Moses endured. How did he leave Egypt? How did he not fear the wrath of the king? How did he go through all the trials and tribulations through which he and the people of God went? The answer is, he endured by seeing him who is unseen. He looked to the Christ and considered the reproach of Jesus greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt. You're blessed if for doing the right thing, you suffer. This finds favor with God. So remember those in prison and those who are ill-treated. And I'll take the risk of saying, maybe to the dismay of some, there's no persecution happening here. I don't see it anyway. I memorized years ago the list of the top 50 countries in which my brothers and sisters in Christ are persecuted so that I could remember to pray for them when I'm going about my way and my day. Today, the top four countries, North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, and Libya, it's hard to rank which is worse. They're persecuted. Believers here, though, are so prone, are we not, to let one little thing touch America and we go all apocalyptic. Do you think this is a sign of the end times? Maybe so. I pray that Jesus will come back before I finish this sentence. I believe in the imminent return of Jesus. He can come back in any nanosecond. And I pray that He will Maranatha, Lord Jesus. But instead of living fearful, because our creature comforts might be barely touched or somewhat minimized, we are to soberly and prayerfully remember our brothers and sisters who are actually being ill-treated. Verse 3, for the faith. I commend to you, get in touch with the plight of your suffering siblings and it will put perspective on any challenges that we're currently walking through. Opendoorsusa.org, joshuaproject.net, persecution.com. There are many places at your fingertips where you can find 
reliable information and prayer fuel for your suffering brothers and sisters. So remember those in prison and those who are ill-treated. This is an application of the immutability of Jesus. He's not going to change. Sufferings and jails can't contain him. His purposes march forward. The Lausanne Congress said it so well many years ago. We care about all suffering, and I do care about the suffering in this land, but we care especially about eternal suffering. I don't want to put more springs on your wagon while you make a safe journey to hell. We must embrace Jesus and all that comes with loving him. Verse 4, there's a marriage application. In verse 5, there's a money application. So you see how the concentric circles are getting tighter. We started with brothers and strangers. We went to people in our own congregation, perhaps, who were in prison and ill-treated. And now he's in our home. He's actually in our bedroom. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge, verse 4. The concentric circles are closing in. Now we're at the most intimate human relationship. One spouse to another, husband and wife. The character of Christ and his priestly work is to make, makes us God's children through his death and resurrection. But once we're God's children, he will infect and affect our most tender bonds of love. You know already that God's favorite illustration of his love for his children from Genesis to Revelation is human marriage. He created the institution of human marriage for many good reasons. For the population of the planet, for the advance of his kingdom, but especially, we're told, multiplied times in the Bible, we have an entire book in the Old Testament called Hosea, Ephesians chapter 5, Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 and Mark chapter 10. We could look at Romans chapter 7 and 1 Corinthians 7 and on and on. God's favorite illustration of his love for his people is human marriage. Our marriages are to be the primary arena for those who are married where Christ's love most sweetly manifests. Honor marriage. You don't have to be married to honor marriage. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. You don't have to be married to protect yourself from what this verse calls fornication and adultery. The word fornication is the word in Greek from which we get our word pornography. Adultery is obvious, fornication and adultery. May 2021 be the year that God breaks the chain of the shackles of any man among us, any teenage person among us who is enslaved to pornography. May the power of the risen Jesus and the expulsive power of a new affection for the risen Jesus and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit break the shackles of sexual immorality that are so gripping our culture. And our young men, I'm so burdened for. Not only in this way, but in this way also. But may our marriages be the place where honor and intimacy reflect our fidelity to Jesus. I just want to say to husbands and wives, enjoy your spouse. 
love your spouse. Look deep in each other's eyes and caress each other tenderly with your hands on cheeks and tell each other, I love you. I'm for you. I'm going to stand with you because Jesus stands with me. I'm going to be for you what he calls me to be. All forms of immorality, therefore, must be avoided and marriage must be upheld in honor because our Lord Jesus Christ has the character that demands such an application. Verses 5 and 6, we're to put our trust in our faithful God, not in our bank account. So do you see there's nobody else standing in the room except you and God now in verse 5. We had strangers in verse 2, now it's just you and Jesus. Make sure that your character, we're told, is free from the love of money. The reason he uses money is not accidental. Money's to be used for God's glory, not trusted as a God replacement. To love money doesn't even require that you have it. You can be a covetous person with nothing in your bank account, coveting what other people have. But to love money is a root of all sorts of evil, 1 Timothy 6.10, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. If you make money your God, it's tantamount to spiritual suicide. Matthew 6.25, no one can serve two masters, Jesus said. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now, why did Jesus pick that example. You cannot serve God and wealth, or Hebrews 13. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Why? Why can't we serve God and money? Well, the simple answer is they're served the exact same way. How do people serve wealth? Not by giving wealth something that wealth doesn't have. How do you serve money? How do you serve a dollar? By orienting your whole life around getting one more. Not by giving money something. You don't give a dollar bill something. That's not how you serve money. You serve money by orbiting around money. Everything revolves around money. That's exactly the same way God is served. And there cannot be two fixed points in the center of your life's orbit. The way you serve God is not by giving God something God doesn't have. The way you serve God is by orienting your entire life around Him. He must be, as the sun is the center of our solar system, He must be the heliocentric center of our life. How do we fight the impulse to trust material things, or me, or stuff? Verse 5 tells us, the blood-bought promises of the gospel. We're all tempted to do this. That's why Hebrews 13 tells us how we are to fight it. Do you see the promise in the verse? Verse 5, it comes from Deuteronomy 31 and Joshua chapter 1. God Himself has said, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. I'm not going to desert you. So when we're over here fretting about money and paying the bills and the bank account's low and everything's in the red and we're behind on the note and everything else, and we're worried about money, whatever degree, a lot of it, none of it, whatever the situation is, we're worried about it. God reorients the focus to Himself. I'll never leave you. I'm not going to desert you. I will never forsake you. So we respond now in Psalm 118.6. The Lord is my helper. 
I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the way that our love for others, our love for God's people, our love for our local church, our love for our spouse, and our trust in God is supposed to manifest as we build our life on the foundation of the immutable Jesus. Final comment before we go to the second aspect of loving God's Word is this. If you, concerning money and material things, if you have God and nothing else, you're the most wealthy person in the universe. If you have everything, materially speaking, save God, you're the most impoverished person of all. Soon this life will be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. God is with His people and He'll never forsake us. So the immutable character of Jesus not only fuels our love for our fellow man and our trust in God, but also, verse 7 and verse 9, two ways the immutable character of the Lord Jesus, He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, fuels our devotion to His truth or our feasting on His grace. You could say it either way based on these verses. Verse 7, because Jesus Christ is the same, number one, we are to imitate the faith of those to whom Jesus has faithfully upheld the truthfulness of His Word. It says, remember those who led you, who spoke the Word of God to you. Perhaps it's talking about some of their former pastors or just people in their life. Maybe grandmothers like Lois or mothers like Eunice who discipled young Timothy in the Scriptures when he was just a little lad. Whoever has spoken God's Word to you and modeled the life of Christ in front of you. It doesn't just say spoke the word of God in front of you. We're also to consider the result of their conduct. People whose life is transformed by the renewing of their mind. They are so soaked in scripture that they don't just know the Bible. It becomes part of who they are. God's word shapes and molds us into the image of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Those people are to be our examples I believe the author has in mind, in particular, those who have already died in the faith, considering the result of their conduct. Many take this verse that same way. It could be translated, those who have escaped. It's the same word in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God will provide a way of escape. Those who have outed in their conduct, they're done. Those to whom God has proven himself faithful throughout the duration of their entire life. Those who ran the race looking unto Jesus and they've made it to the finish line and they're now in glory with Him. They didn't recant and God didn't change in His promises. So who are your heroes? Who are your role models? And I'm asking honestly, who do you most want to be like? Who do you envy and find yourself wishing you were more like them, or young people. I've already mentioned my burden for you, but you're living in a situation that is going to be increasingly difficult to navigate. Are your role models social, social media personalities? You can get famous overnight on any one of these platforms. 
Are those the people to whom you most look and after whom you most pattern your life or your look? Is it an athlete or a music artist? Older people are not immune. Who are your role models? Who do you aspire to be like? I believe the author of Hebrews wants all of us to get some old, wrinkled, now in heaven, Sunday school teachers from when we were 3 and 4 and 7 and 12 years old. Some people who finished well, some grandmothers who knew how to pray their hearts out, the lady down the street who used to intercede for us and share little Bible verses with us and write notes to us about how they're praying for us. The author of Hebrews wants us to get some aunts and some uncles, some neighbors and some mentors, some saints from yesteryear, like Hebrews chapter 11. People who finished the race looking unto Jesus and found Him faithful. People who were so saturated in the Bible that when you cut them, they bleed Bible. They spoke the Word of God to you. And you know in the New Testament time, nobody had one of these. Leather-bound copy of the whole canon. How do people speak God's Word when you don't even have a Bible in your home or on your shelf and you only hear it when it's read in the scrolls in the temple? You carefully pay attention to it. You memorize it so that when you talk to other people, you say to them what God said. People who are Bible-soaked and Bible-saturated, and as I said, they bleed Bibline, when you cut them, those people are the people after whom we are to pattern our lives. Those who are so saturated with Scripture, whose lives also match what they said. There was almost no gap between what they told us God said and the way they live. Those are the people we are to aspire to be like. In addition to the character of Christ fueling our devotion to His truth. We are also, in verse 9, commanded to avoid false teaching, varied and strange teachings, including rituals that go along with them, superstitions and religious activities that are of no profit, Colossians says, against fleshly indulgence eating this food or avoiding that day or honoring this day or doing whatever your superstition is will not help you in true godliness. You're to avoid varied and strange teachings, verse 9. Why? Because Jesus is the same. He's not going to change. His truth is not going to be altered. He's already given to you a reliable record, an inspired writ for us to be able to give our attention to. The great affirmation of Jesus' character is bracketed. It's in verse 8. It's bracketed by verse 7 and verse 9 by the theme of teaching. Verse 7 is positive. Verse 9 is negative. We're to avoid certain types of teaching. And are there not a bunch of strange teachings going on now? I mean, they just get stranger by the day. There are no new lies. All the lies are old. They're just repeat versions and different packages of the old lies. But they're varied and strange. I mean... Uh, let's see, is Bill Gates trying to put chips in all of our bodies through a vaccination so he can control us remotely from his iPhone? Christians, just getting carried away by all kind of apocalyptic wildness, strangeness, new stuff. Just like I abhor the prosperity gospel, if you're faithful to God and you have enough faith, which is faith in faith, not faith in Jesus, then you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. I abhor that. It's a lie from the pit of hell. It makes sense to me why it appeals to people. But it's born in the heart of Satan 
not Jesus. I abhor that. I also abhor when God's people are carried away by the novelties of our day. If I say anything new to you, just don't believe me. Our hearts are rather than being carried away by varied and strange teaching. Verse 9, we're to be strengthened by glutting ourselves on grace. Food is not going to benefit you. That's just a ritualistic, superstitious, spiritual practice. So the priests in the temple say, eat this sacrifice or eat that sacrifice and it'll give you, you know, two points with God. No, 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 no. Glut yourself not on superstitious, superstitious religiosity. Glut yourself on grace. Get fat on grace. Have you bellied up to the table of the richest affair, the banquet of Christ lately? And I don't say that in order to discourage you, but to entice you. There's a seat for you at the table of the king. And there is bounty beyond imagining that he has already purchased and prepared for you that sits ready and available for you. And I'm encouraging you in verse 9 to strengthen your heart by glutting yourself on grace. In addition to love to our fellow man and trust in God, rooted in the immutability of Christ, in addition to our devotion to the truth and our glutting ourselves on the grace that Jesus purchased for us and is to us, we are also, and most especially, to be devoted to Him. So you can see the way I, I hope you can see the way I'm seeing this chapter. That is, a wise person invests themselves in love to others, love to God's Word, and now love to God Himself. There are three ways this passage tells us that in verses 12 and following. Devotion to our Savior. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, we are to go to Him. Do you see that? Go out to Him. The One who suffered outside the gate for us. This, this is such a beautiful picture of the Gospel. It, it's actually the main point of the whole book of Hebrews. It's not only mentioned here, it's literally mentioned everywhere. It starts in chapter 1 in the first three verses, and it continues all the way to chapter 13 in the final verses, that Jesus the Lord is our high priest. The high priest goes into the presence of God and makes a sacrifice that he accepts on behalf of the sinful people so that they can be absolved of their sin and made right with him. And the book of Hebrews is about the fact that Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice that God required and accepted for our eternal redemption, Hebrews 9.12. So the writer is comparing here in verse 12 the blood sacrifice of the Lord Jesus with the blood sacrifice that was made year after year after year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, Listen to Leviticus 16.27 as you keep verse 12 in your mind. Therefore Jesus suffered outside the gate where the bodies of animals were burned. Keep that in mind. Now listen to this. Leviticus 16.27 about the Day of Atonement. But the bull of the sin offering and, of the goat, and the goat of the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be taken outside the camp and they shall burn their hides, their flesh, and their refuse in the fire. So the author of Hebrews says, you remember that? All that blood? 
All those goats and bulls and turtle doves and pigeons. Do you remember all the rams and all the throat slitting and all the blood dripping? Do you remember all that temple sacrifice? And do you remember that Day of Atonement sacrifices were not consumed? They were not eaten. The priests didn't take them. The Levites didn't take them. They took the carcasses of those animals and they threw them outside the city in a big refuse heap and they just burned them. Do you remember that? Now listen to this. Jesus didn't suffer here. Because that's not even the real temple. Hebrews 9 says he went into the heavenly temple, the true one. This is just a pattern that's made after that one. He went into the presence of God. And he, as the high priest, didn't bring a bull. He didn't bring a goat. He himself, chapter 7, is the sacrifice. And where did he suffer? On the refuse heap. On the pile of carcasses, on the dirty, nasty, sinful, wretched, putrid, make your stomach churn, throw up, nauseous, gag reflex. That's where Jesus went. Why did he die out there? To show sinners like you and me that he can save the worst of us. The most wretched of us, the most putrid, nauseating. You'll say, preacher, you don't know what I've done. Jesus does. And he went right into the middle of it and died for you. So that you can be pure in front of God. Let us go out to Him. Outside the gate. Bearing His reproach. I've told you earlier. Jesus doesn't change. He's indefatigable. He can't be mutated. There is no alteration in Him. And some of you who know your Bibles and know your theology and know as was prayed earlier so beautifully Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so those of you who know Jesus know that he became a man verse 12 tells us why so that he could die chapter 2 says it more explicitly in Hebrews because the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise also partook of the same so that through death He might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Surely he doesn't give help to the children, uh, to, to them, but he gives help to the children of Abraham. Why did he become human? Chapter 4 tells us so that he could die. Chapter 10 tells us he took on a body so that he could die. So you would say he did change. He, He didn't have a body, now he has a body. Isn't that a change? Doesn't the incarnation change? Jesus. He wasn't a man for all of eternity. He had no body. His name wasn't even Jesus then. When he took on humanity in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the immaculate conception of the Holy Spirit, he took on humanity. And doesn't that change the second person of the Trinity? Thomas Watson helps us understand this mystery. Question, when Christ who is God assumed the human nature, was there a change in God? Answer. If the divine nature had been converted into the human, or the human nature into the divine, there would have been a change. But they were not. The human nature was distinct from the divine nature, therefore there was no change. A cloud over the sun makes no change in the sun, just so, though the divine nature is covered with the human nature, It makes no change in the divine nature. One of the most precious truths of the Gospel is that the same body the Lord Jesus died in, He was raised in, 
Thomas touched him and saw the nail prints in his hands and in his side. The the prints from the crown of thorns still remained in his glorified brow. He ascended in that same body, we're told in Acts 1, and he's going to return in that same body. And one of the most precious truths of the gospel is because you share in flesh and blood, he took on the same human nature without conflating the two natures, perfectly, truly divine, truly man, two natures, one person, not two people. And he will return again in that same body. And when we get to him, 1 John chapter 3, you're going to see him. You're going to see the unseeable God. No man has seen God at any time. But the only begotten God has exegeted Him to us. God dwells in unapproachable light. No man can see Him, has seen Him, or can see Him. But the Lord Jesus bodily, you can't see God the Father. You can't see God the Holy Spirit. And before the incarnation, you couldn't see God the Son. But for all of eternity, Revelation chapter 4, we will, before the throne of Him who lives forever and ever, who was and who is and who is to come, we will say, worthy art Thou, our Lord and our God, who was, does this sound like Hebrews 8? Who is, and who is to come. So, the last thing is this. And it applies to our cultural moment as much as any verse in the Bible I can think of. We are to, verse 13 and 14, bear the reproach of Christ, verse 13, and verse 14, seek a lasting city. And it's not here yet. It is to come. So bear the reproach of Him. The most simple, direct, faithful way I know how to explain that statement in verse 13 is this. True Christians will take whatever comes with loving Jesus. We're not ashamed of Him. If loving Jesus means this or means that, our answer is yes. His reproach is our joy. The apostles said in Acts, we're we're told that they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. The reproach of Jesus was their glory, not their groaning. And so I say to my brothers and sisters in this very trying time, Do everything without groaning and complaining. Jesus is for you. Bear His reproach. If reproaches come for fidelity fidelity to Christ, then reproaches it will be. We will unashamedly unite ourselves to Christ. He has ran away to heaven with our hearts and we are unashamed to be called His people. But that's not where it ends. You don't have to just get reproach, period. You get reproach, dot, 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 until verse 14 the lasting city, which is to come. You know who's going to be ashamed on that day? Not the people who joyfully embrace the reproach of Christ. Do you find yourself more concerned with current political trends than with perishing souls? And I mean that as soberly and humbly as I can say it. If I checked your news feed or the data on your phone... Would we see hours of megabytes of pundits telling you why you ought to be fearful or scared or what somebody's trying to steal from you or fear-mongering? Does your own life and your speech 
about the current political climate in our land bear out that you are confident that you have already a citizenship in heaven from which you are awaiting the return of Jesus or would it bear out that you are fretting over your citizenship in this land? Friends, does your freedom in this country hold precedent over the liberty that 2 Corinthians 3 says you already have in Christ? What if your so-called freedoms are taken away tomorrow? And they might be. What if civil magistrates begin seizing your property? Let's say when you get home today, your house is ransacked. Not by an unknown thief, but by somebody who put a sticker on the front door and said that civil magistrates have come to seize all your property. That's what you go home to. And they tell you why they did so because they heard that you were down there in Greenlaw Community Center worshiping Jesus and identifying yourself with Christians. Or what if they just start plundering everything? You find holes in your sheetrock and all the banisters are broken and everything's just been turned upside down and inside out. All the windows are smashed and appliances and plumbing fixtures are just in total disarray. Or, or let's say, what if they start throwing believers in prison this afternoon in Memphis for our faith? If you're in a frenzy now, and you're ready to take up arms to defend your freedoms, what's your response going to be then? Will it be the same as we read in Hebrews 13? I'm not happy about it. I don't want it. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. But I'm not devastated by it either. Because I'm not seeking a lasting city here. I'm seeking the city which is to come. Will our response be the same as Hebrews 10.34? And you've got to listen carefully to this one because it doesn't make sense unless Jesus is who the Bible says He is. But remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy, sympathy to the prisoners, here it comes, and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Did it, did it say joyfully? Not begrudgingly? Or in a spirit of retaliation? Do you want it to be said of you by God that He is not ashamed to be called your God? Hebrews tells you how that can happen. Hebrews 11.15 Indeed, if they, that's Abraham, his wife, and his kids, had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God, God is not ashamed to be called their God for He has prepared a city for them. That's what verse 14 is about. That's the city that we're all seeking. It's not here. We can't establish the kingdom of Christ now. That's not even our job. The missio day is not the same as the mission of the church. God's mission and our mission overlap, but they're not identical. He will establish His kingdom. Why did He teach us to pray? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because He fully intends to do it. And one day, Revelation chapter 20 is going to happen. Heaven's going to come down. New heavens, new earth, perfectly glorified society. But it's not happening until the Lord determines and affects it.
So Charles Spurgeon helps us to ponder the immutability of God's love for us in Christ. The foundation of Jesus' sameness yesterday, today, and forever on which we can stand and build our lives. Spurgeon said, if God loved me once, then He'll love me forever. Because Jesus is the same. Did Jesus once upon me shine? Then Jesus is forever mine. Because Jesus is the same. The objects of everlasting love never change. Those whom God has called, He will justify. Whom He has justified, He will sanctify. Whom He sanctifies, He will glorify. So the wise man, knowing the truth of the Lord Jesus' nature, builds his life on that rock. It's not if the rains come, when they come. Not if the floods rise, when they rise. Not if the wind. When the winds blow, our changeless Redeemer gives us a firm foundation on which to put our feet. In today's text, we see that wise man standing upon the foundation of Christ, devoting himself in love to his fellow man, all those concentric circles, all the way down into his bedroom at home and his heart before God, trusting God. He will never leave me. He'll never forsake me. Therefore, I will say, I will not fear what can man do to me. We'll devote ourselves to his truth. Those who spoke the word of God to us, whose character showed that God actually changes people from the inside out. Those are our role models and examples who we want to be like, we aspire to be like, and the legacy we want to leave for people behind us. And we go out to Jesus, who suffered for the most vile and wretched, to show that through His death and His victorious resurrection, He can make us right with God forever. We give ourselves to God, we give ourselves to His Word, and we give ourselves to His people because our Jesus doesn't change. The expression of that shows up in local churches. I look forward to seeing you next Lord's Day where we do verse 15. Continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. Have you told Him thank you for all the hardships in 2020? In everything, give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you for being changeless. Thank you for being sovereign. I don't understand this. Somehow, I'm seeing the underside of the tapestry that you're crocheting, but I trust that on the top of that, there's a beautiful picture that you are drawing for the glory of Christ and the good of your people. Thank you, God that we're living in these times. Thank you for all the hardships. I don't understand them. I don't want them, but I trust you. You will never leave me. You will never forsake me. You won't desert me. Praising and giving thanks is the antidote to worldly-mindedness. You worship your way into sin by believing it will give you something that it promises. And you have to worship your way out of sin, not by just cutting this off, but by going to the fountain of Christ and finding in Him a satisfaction that makes all these look like refuse and dung. So friends, I've heard so many challenging things over the last year. I'm not minimizing any of them. As we embark on a new year, we don't put our trust, as Nathan said, in calendar dates. But I love you. I love you. I pray for you. I know you pray for me, and I'm astonished <laughs> that you love me, but I know you do. And because we love each other, 
it's okay to honestly say we are fools to suppose that we can have protracted seasons of our lives in which we fail to fix our hearts upon the Lord Jesus daily through His Word, humbly in prayer, and yet be laser precise in our assessment and application of everything that's going on in our day. I've heard so many say, man, my quiet time, I, I hadn't had a quiet time in three months, pray for me. And in the next breath, they got rock solid, bold assessments of everything happening today. We're fools to think that we can see clearly when our eyes aren't riveted to Christ. Similarly, we're fools to suppose that while our Bibles are all covered with dust and our knees have no calluses from communion with God in prayer and our lives show no intentionality of loving our fellow man and seeking them out to encourage them in the Lord that we're capable of being discerning about how everybody else is supposed to live. That's foolish. Because Jesus Christ is the same. Let's just do verse 16. Do as much good as you possibly can to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Go home and make a list. No joke. Who are you going to do good to in the month of January just because they belong to the same God you belong to? Who are you going to share with? Isn't this amazing that the immutable God who never changes is not static. He's dynamic. He's alive. Isn't this amazing? Verse 16 says, if you'll just do good to your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you'll share with one another as need arises. Do you see verse 16? With such sacrifices, God is pleased. The heart of the changeless God is roused to pleasure if we will just show His love to our brothers and sisters. So I offer my same conclusion to you today that I offered Easter Sunday of 2016 from this very same pulpit. It was concluding seven years of looking unto Jesus in our sermon series through this magisterial, Christ-exalting epistle. And I want to ask you concerning the truth that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yesterday, did our Savior fail our first parents after He made gospel promises to them in Galatians 3 and gave them a gospel picture in robing them in the blood sacrifice of that animal, uh, Genesis 3? Did our Savior fail righteous Abel on the day that he died at the hands of his brother or Noah and the seven other humans who alone were saved in the worldwide flood? Did our Lord Jesus fail to fulfill even one of his promises to Abraham? Or did he fail Israel yesterday in the 400 plus years of their servitude and in the time of famine in their history? Did our Lord Jesus fail Moses when he stood on the bank of the Red Sea with a million and a half plus Israelites who had no other hope than God? Did he fail Ruth when she was alone as a God-fearer in the land of Moab or David before the Philistine giant? Did our God fail Esther when she stood as a teenage girl all by herself before the face of the most powerful man on the planet? Did God ever fail one minute of that second worst day in human history in the life of Job during his horrific sufferings and its second worst only to the cross of Christ? 
Did he fail Jeremiah, though he lived an entire life of weeping? Or Daniel when he was in a den of lions? Or Jonah when he was in the belly of the fish? Yesterday, did Jesus fail Habakkuk when his life fell apart? The fig tree did not blossom and the field produced no food and the cattle were cut off from the stalls. Did he fail today? The day of the author of the book of Hebrews who lived in the same day that there were fishermen who left their net and their business and their livelihood and everything they knew is familiar to follow the rabbi? Did he fail tax collectors who got up from their booths instantaneously in order to sell it all to follow Christ and buy that field which was worth more than everything else they had? Did he fail Nicodemus who buried his lifeless body or those ladies who went to put burial spices on his crucified body or Thomas who touched his risen and yet still pierced side? Did Jesus fail Paul when he knocked him as Saul from his horse and revealed to him his glory, or Lydia, when he opened her heart to believe? Or did he fail the jailer who was ready to end his life if Paul had not asserted that all the prisoners were still in the camp? Did he fail those at Antioch who received his word with joy and after which endured so much severe persecution? Or the beleaguered church to which the letter of Hebrews is written in the regions of Galatia? Or the little fellowship that was in Ephesus or Iconium? Did he fail the aged John when he was banished to the Isle of Patmos for his fidelity to the Lord Jesus? Will he fail in the future? That's yesterday and today. What about forever? Will he cease to be the delight of every angelic being? Will he ever fail to brighten heaven with the brightness of his glory? Will he cease to rule over all of his enemies until they're made a footstool for his feet? Will he ever forsake anybody whose hope and trust is in him? Will he fail to fill the throne of grace? Will he cease to intercede for those who are his loved ones? Will he ever cease to plead the merits of his blood for those whom the Father has given to him? Will he ever cease to spread the covering of his righteousness? over those who fly to Him for mercy. Friends, yesterday in church history, we can look back the annals of time and see in the church fathers and the reformers and the Puritans and down to this very day, those who carried the Gospel into their communities and into foreign lands, did He fail those who were burned at the stake for translating His Word into a common language so that everybody else could read it or who preached His Gospel in times of severe persecution? Today, has he failed your parents or grandparents whom you know belong to him? Has he failed anybody in your family tree? Do you, do you even know one person who said they regret giving their life to Jesus? Have you ever heard such nonsense? Has he failed to fulfill even one of his extraordinary promises? Friends, the same Jesus who has never failed them has never compromised his character, is the same today. Even right now, he is near to the heart of God for you. Hebrews 9 says he's, as I speak, standing in front of the face of God for you. If you'll have him, this Jesus will now and forevermore be the channel, the conduit, the avenue, the highway of holiness of God's love to you forever. He will be the same mediator forever. You can bank on and trust Him without any fear that He will ever 
modify his promises. Spurgeon's got to close us because it was too good not to save for last. Beloved, can you conceive how much Christ will love you when you're in heaven? Have you tried to fathom that bottomless sea of affection in which you shall swim, when you shall bathe yourself in seas of heavenly rest? Did you ever think of the love which Christ will manifest to you when He shall present you without spot, blemish, or any such thing before the Father's throne? Well, pause and remember that He loves you at this hour as much as He will love you then. For He will be the same forever as He is today. And He is the same today as He will be forever. This one thing I know, if Jesus' heart is set on me, He will not love me one atom better when this head wears a crown and when this hand shall with joyous fingers touch the strings of golden harps than He does right now amid all my sin, my care, and my woe. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray. And then we will affirm our faith in song as we close. Oh, Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus who for sinners like us suffered outside the gate, spilled His own blood on the altar of the true temple in heaven. He has mercy seated us. He is our propitiation. And He ever lives to plead the merits of His blood for those whose hope is in Him. Father, don't let us be carried away. 2021 may be for us harder than the previous year. There may be more macro and micro challenges. Thank You that You've already told us. There's a rock. There's a foundation on which we can set our feet. It never wavers. never moves the solid rock of Christ. We believe in Him. And we ask You to give us grace to faithfully follow Him. We love You. In Jesus' name, Amen.